Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Build It Up podcast. My name's Alex Moody, your host. I'm the CEO of Moody Cadell and Partners. And today we've got with us the co-founder of Moody Cadell and Partners, David Cadell. David is my dad's um, business partner and co-founder. He started the business in 1981 and there's a story behind that which we heard Terry's version of <laughs> in the previous podcast so now we get to hear David's version. But before we do, I just wanted to start with your a uh, little bit about your early times. I mean, I'm excited to talk to you because I've obviously known you almost my entire life but there's you know, pretty big chunks of your life and your business life and your, um, uh, you know, what you did in the early days that I haven't known about. So I'm really excited to ask some of those questions. One of them is, what was your first job? Before we get to that, and thank you for the introduction, Alex, I've been having a bit of a clean out at home. And talking about my early days, this is coming the full circle for me. And I'll let you read that. So that's how long I've known you. Wow. Okay, so you just handed me a letter, which looks like it was my handwriting, at least my handwriting from when I was eight years old. It's, it's on a, um, a piece of paper with an apple on it, and somehow I actually remember the piece of paper, um, or certainly the letter paper. It says, Dear David, Mum, Tom and I have been reading Day of the Dingo and we are on the last chapter. I think it is such a great book that I want to go on forever. I love it. Love from Alexander. That was uh, when I was eight years old. And that was a book written by my father. That's right. I remember that. I actually remember the book. I remember sitting with mum and my brother reading it. There you go. There you go. Wow. I mean... Talk to us about the significance of handwritten notes to you. How much time do we have for this, Alex? Because that's a very long story. So which one do you want first, the beginning bit or the handwritten note? Well, let's do the handwritten note and then we'll start. go back to the start. Now we'll go back to the beginning. Let's, let's, let's kick on that one. You, you started this. Let's, let's dive into it. The handwritten note? Yeah, handwritten note. Well, it's a personal touch. Uh, back in the day when... Terry and I were full thrust in the business. Uh, we would have the opportunity to go and see every client, belly button to belly button. I'm sure Terry would have spoken of that. But you don't get to know your client until you've been able to look them in, look them in the eye, walk around their business, stand in their boots and see their business from their perspective. A wise man once said, a good salesperson has two ears and one mouth and should be used in that proportion. And you don't really get the opportunity to do that unless you are sitting in front of that person and sharing his experience. Um, a great man, I'm sure we'll come back to him a few times in this. There's so much to talk about with this. I'm trying to be brief, but it's impossible. And it's something which I know Terry will share all my views on that, I'm sure. And something we both love, value and cherish, which is to a large extent built the business. Values which I hope, uh, no matter how technological we become, uh, values which I hope we'll never lose. A wise man by the name of Tom Hopkins, a sales motivational expert, once said, you are only working 
and you are sitting in front of a person that has the capacity to say yes to your product. And sitting in front of that client, you're able to share his experiences, listen, and actually understand what the client wants to provide the product, the service, and the time frame. And at the end of the day, we're a broker, we're a middleman, so our perspective should be all of that, the handwritten note. So back in the day, when Terry and I were out pressing the flesh, signing up clients, doing all of those sorts of things, um, we got to understand those experiences. And then when we would come back, unfortunately, DocuSign had never been invented. So, and only the other day I was in the office here talking to all the young guns. Now at the age of 70, I was asked, what did I enjoy about the job? And maybe you'll ask me later, I have no idea. But all my memories aren't of a piece of paper or a typewriter or a fax machine or of a nice office. It's of people and it's of stories and it's for success and failure and sharing the successes and working on the failures. And we would come back, settle the transaction, thank the appropriate people, the credit officer that didn't want to do the deal, but did the deal, and the client was so grateful for that and would pass on that thankfulness from the client, because often there'd be game changes. Thank the accountant who was part of it, which is also good for business, because you're able to then go back to them and say, hey, remember us, and maybe we'll talk about that as well, I don't know. And of course the sales representative, and then we'd send them a copy of the documents, which I would know, the client would never read. Because all they wanted to know was the money was there and they wanted to trust you. And by being there at the coalface with them, they were able to make up their mind on their level of comfort. And when that was all done, we would send them a copy of the documents and the invoice and all of those wonderful things the accountant would need. And that would go to the accountant as well. And after it was done and dusted, that was it. Job done. But over time, I learned that um, it was a nice thing to write to the client and say, hey, did you get a copy of those documents I sent to you? Did you understand what I said? Is there anything else we can do for you? And a little thing called thank you. All of the above, some of that, none of that. But just to make contact with the client, where I, David John Cadell, have taken a moment out of my day not to send him a text, not to send him a thumbs up or a little caricature of somebody with a smiley face, but to say, hey, I value you, and I'm taking a moment of my time to write to you on an actual piece of paper. And when he opened it, it was tactile. And maybe that's part of my generation. I have a mate, and I've got a bucket of CDs in my lounge room. Actually, quite a few. And my mate would come over, and he's been a mate for 40 years, and he's my age, and he'd go through the CDs. And I, I'm a modern man. I've got Spotify. And I listen to that all the time, and it's a wonderful invention. But he comes over, my mate, and we talk about music, and we talk about it, and we pick it up and we touch it and we look at the cover and we put it back. And he often smiles at me and says, you know, we're just getting old, but we're tactile and we like to touch things. 
and I think it's just nice on the occasion to receive a piece of paper that's not a bill, not a scam, that says thank you. So I do value that. And any number of arrangements and things can come from that. But if none, at least you've given the, cu the customer the satisfaction of knowing that you're an important part of Moody Cadell and Partners and always will remain so for the life of the contract and hopefully, be, hopefully beyond. So that's my thing. Talk to us about your first job and let's take us back there. How far do you want to go back? Well, yeah, the, the first time that, that you did a service for somebody and got paid for it. That wasn't your mum and dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's set that straight. I was never paid for a service by my mum and dad. <laughs> right, okay. Um, okay, so I did... Um, you really want to know. Yeah. I did commerce at, at, at school. And I learnt what a cash book was, what a ledger was, what a journal was. And um, I used to get five shillings pocket money a week. So this is pounds, shillings and pence. Right. What's a shilling? A shilling was ten cents. Ten cents. Let me think. Now that came in in um, 19, yeah. 14th of Feb 1968. We swapped over. Um, so I began, my first job was mowing lawns for Sheila Walsh and they were directly opposite, uh, and I would get five shillings for doing that. And then word spread, and I got my neighbour Bob Wright two doors down, and I used to mow his lawns. And then he had builders there extending at a copper plate lawn that I would mow. And he asked if I wanted to come over and help and just do whatever, the la and I was young, and I remember a very large wheelbarrow of concrete and a wooden plank. And I spilt the lot on that lawn. And I was never asked back. <laughs> so I did that. Uh, and I, I kept that up till um, Sheila died, actually, and the house was demolished. Um, then I took up babysitting. Um, and. Um, I did that for any number of people in the street when I was responsible. I fell in love with one of the neighbours and fantasised about her all my life, Margot Rudder. She was the darling. But uh, any number of children a as such I, I grew up with. I used to get... Um, yeah, I used to get uh, five shillings an hour, but double after midnight. Now, if you're listening, back in those days, we didn't have Netflix, Spotify, or anything like that. We had a television. And back then, black and white, most likely. And at midnight, they'd play God Save the Queen. They'd have a submarine with an Australian naval flag on it. And it would then submerge, or come up, I can't remember. And then you'd see the Queen saluting the troops. And then the television would go either out black or there'll be a test pattern come up so from midnight on I would have to sit there and twiddle my thumbs and uh, so I did that um, and then the next job I got my next door neighbour bar a couple Alan Wilson uh, was the accountant for a tannery in Botany 
and it was my first job outside the street. And I was about, I don't know, 14, 15, something like that. And he'd pick me up and drive me to the tannery. What's a tannery? Well, it's, it's where they get the hide and they break it down and there's a massive vat which would be the size of a large swimming pool and they throw these hides in it and the fat would go away and they pull the leather out and they clean it and dry it and so on. And I worked in the room directly above it, weighing it and packaging it with another guy. And the room was, I remember, had uh, four walls of timber, no windows, no ventilation, timber roof, timber floor. And they'd bring the hides up and, and the guy that was working there had been there since Captain Cook arrived. And you'd have to stack it, weigh it, with the text to write the weight on it, and then they'd wrap it up in string, but it wasn't string, it was that woolly string. Now I'm about 15, and this guy would wrap it into four, and then with his thumb and finger, he'd break this, he'd snap it. And then he'd expect me to do it. And I couldn't do it. And for two or three days I tried, and my thumb was about to fall off, it was pink, and you know, it was almost dismembered. And then I thought, I'm going to take a knife in, bugger this, so I did. And uh, I did that for the next two weeks. I made $35. Now, Alan Wilson was the accountant for It was a big firm. And I never got paid. And I said to him, when I saw him sometime later, Alan, I've never been paid. Why not? He said, oh, you have. But I gave my first pay packet to my mother. And I've given yours to your mother. I was wondering how long it would take you to ask me. So I went home and my mother gave me my $35. Then huh. my next job, I worked at um, Gowings, selling socks and underwear. And this was a very valuable life lesson. Um, I was oh, probably 16, 17. And, uh, you know, it was a Christmas holiday job, two weeks before Christmas. And I stood on the ground floor of Gowings in the socks and underwear department and, and also speedos. And there's a big clock on the wall and you weren't allowed to sit down and you were there from eight to six or whatever it was back then. And there was this big clock. It was that big, white face, little black markings on it with a red minute hand going around. And I was bored out of my brain. And I was with another guy that had been with Gowings when they were down at Circular Quay. And I could not remember Gowings being at Circular Quay. And he'd been there over 50 years. And he showed me his watch. And he looked at me and he said, David, probably call me son, because people don't use names very often in this world. It's, anyway. And he said, there is nothing you can tell me that I don't know about socks and underwear. And I gave him that. I gave him that. And I looked at that clock, and a minute later, I looked at that clock. And a minute later, I looked at that clock. And what I learned is the most invaluable lesson, most valuable lesson that I've ever had. I made myself a promise, then and there, that I would never have a job where I watched the clock. Well, boy, was I wrong. Because when I got together with your old man and started this, all I did was watch the clock. Because there was never enough time in the day. You started doing, you finished at midnight, not literally, but you know my point. And all my life I've been chasing my tail for time, which 
taught me good time management skills, I would like to think. I've written down some, uh, I mean, what we would call them Cadellisms. Um, and maybe you can riff on a couple of these, but one of them I think is poignant to bring up now, which is all about your concept of time management. And I would say that certainly within this firm, you are renowned for, and the reason why, one of the reasons why we are so successful is because of the way that we structure deals. I mean, you, you know, the old adage, you know, if you want something done, give it to a busy person. Well, all of our people are always busy, but they're never frantic. And I think it's because we've built systems around this thing that I'm going to mention, but I'd love for you to sort of tell me your version of it, um, which is do all you can on... So do everything in, put everything in order of priority and do all that you can on item number one before you do anything on item number two. Well, none of these are my ideas. Uh, there's nothing new under the sun. You just need to listen and get to the point where you think, well, it's not working for me, so I've got to try something else. And, uh, yeah, so put everything in order of priority. Don't do anything you can um, on number two to you. Then everything that you can, I should say, on, on, on number one. <sighs> where does that come from? Um, what does it mean? Like, what does it actually mean, you know, in your day and when you're prioritising stuff's coming at you, you're sitting at your desk? What is it? That's a great question, Alex. So what it actually means is, let's go back, you are only working when you are sitting in front of. That can also be the telephone. And when you're on the phone, if you've got a spaghetti chart turned upside down all over your desk and you can't find your car keys and you're working on 15 deals at once because your name is Einstein and the client rings up, it can often be, am I on screen now? You're on the phone talking to the client about what's important to them and I'm trying to think of this, that and the other over here. Um, this is where, if I can be brutally honest, your father and I vary a little bit. Terry would say, empty desk, empty mind. I would contradict that. And I would say exactly the mantra that you've just given me. And I would like to have only one transaction on my desk. I've been fortunate in my life to have a desk that was an L shape. Why is that important? Well, I have the attention span of a gnat on a good day because there's so many things happening, so many people interrupting you. You get so distracted, you forget why you're there. So, number one, put everything in order of importance. And what I tell the young staff, and this is crucial, you've had an argument with your girlfriend, wife, child, you're putting off a doctor's appointment, Whatever it is that niggles you, I used to get to work and I'd make a cup of coffee and I'd have the same routine every day. I'd clamp my fingernails, I'd do this, I'd sort that out so that I was in that space to be all that I can be for that client and for myself to enjoy the day and for the business. That sounds a bit dramatic, but you know what I'm saying. Now, when you're working on something... If I was able to just focus on that, then I could give it my all. Why did I mention an L-shaped desk? 
Do you, do you want all the silly little things to make the difference? 100%. Okay. So, years ago, I bought a set of golf sticks. I'm coming to the point. And the pro said, do you like the look of them? I said, yeah, yeah, but are they any good? Yeah, yeah, they're good, but do you like the look of them? I said, oh, I like the look, but tell me about it. He said, no, do you like the look of them? And I said, well, yeah, they're really nice. I said, he said, that's good. I said, great. Why are you asking me that? He said, because when you're over the ball, if you don't like the look of the golf stick, if you don't like the look of the club, you're not going to feel good about the shot. And I've just read a golf book that talks about putting and visualising the putt. Don't worry about the swing through, but visualise and feel the putt. You know, very much Star Wars-ish. Same with the golf stick. Same with the client. So, I, to this day, I have uh, a mouse pad underneath my phone and I'd straighten my cable. I know this is a name, but I see people at their desks and the cords are all screwed up and they're reaching over to get to it. So they're in a bad posture, framed to talk to their client. I would keep an empty pad and a pencil on the pad beside the phone on the mouse pad so I could pull the phone over to me I had the mouse pad. I'm very much in the spaghetti chart of whatever I'm looking at. Somebody rings me on a $20,000 Ford Fiesta <coughs> on the back of Broken Hill that I couldn't give a rat's about. And I turn around and there's an empty pad and I say, Tom, how can I help you? And I'm invested in that call because I have completely disconnected. Um, some of the great presidents of the United States, and I've read about them, uh, Jimmy Carter for one, had the tremendous capacity to focus on the one thing, irrespective of the things around him. I don't have that. So my fail-safe was to be able to have a safe space where I could listen to my client, where I could absorb my client, and I could say, how can I help you? And then when I hang up, I can act, and then I can go back to where I was. Now, there are pitfalls, you know, the average transaction size of this company is, as we know, about $80,000. But then you get a pop-up toaster for five cents and then you've got a billion dollar deal on the other side of the desk. So the large deal will take more time. So the trap is, what I'm going to do, I've got five pop-up toasters and a few little food, I'll get them out of the way and by lunchtime I'll be doing that. But in the meantime, the phone's gone ten times, you've been completely interrupted. You haven't got to anything and you've done two pop-up toasters. That comes from people would ask me, I used to have a sales speech where Rudy could ever do anything from a pop-up toaster to a lead jet from Perth to Cross of Pines, just an old thing. Anyway, I would find that the week's gone by and all I've done are pop-up toasters. And the big thing that I'm going to save myself for is running late, then they're ringing up what's happening and I've done nothing and you lose the deal. So what you've got to do is put everything in order of that priority, which will begin with making sure that you've had your coffee, if you've had an argument with your wife, or there's something important that's not a transaction. You need to say I'm sorry to someone or you need to enact something. Whatever that might be. You need to do that and get it out of the way so that your headspace is totally on why you're there, which is to write business, 
and achieve the outcomes the client wants. And then the crucial thing is don't do anything you can on number two till you've done everything you can on number one. In a finance broking role, that is to keep everybody informed. That would be the client, number one. If the client has to ring you about where the proposal is up to, you've lost. All parties. So invariably there are several parties. No, in our day, it was a phone call. You know, Terry and I have seen the fax machine come in and the fax machine go out. Today it's a lot easier, I'll give you that. And more efficient. Maybe not as wholesome, but it's more efficient. But then you've got the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, you've got the accountant, you've got the sales representative, and whatever else. And when you've done when you have done everything you can on that transaction, everything, then you can move to the side and sell on number two. But there's something else, which is to make notes. And they go hand in hand with the hold date or um, the action date that we call it today with our sales force. But if you're running, is this the sort of stuff you want? 100%. So if you're running 50 or 100 files, where do you begin? You can't apologise to everybody first thing in the morning. You've eventually got to get down to work. So how do you know what you've got to do? So that then makes you, that then makes you make arrangements that mean something. And as a child, I don't know if you want this, Alex, but as a child, I would watch a, a, a stagecoach get robbed or a train with lots of gold and the baddies come. The baddies had black hats guns and they would only have six bullets in them wind up throwing it at the good guys and the good guys have white hats a million bullets in their guns and so on anyway the baddies get the gold and they run off and they say i meet you at the pass and they all go different directions and it would do my head in as a child i think what pass what time was it the kaiba pass was it a pass that's six miles wide on the north the south the east the west up down morning night and today we see, you know, uh, all the spy movies. I'll meet you in, 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 in Rome. When? Where? How? Why? And when you take a transaction, I'll get it approved. When? Where? How? Why? A thousand things come off that. So I would write down the date. I would write down the time. And I would say, I said that she said that he said that. Whatever that outcome was. And... In our, in our time, it would be... I don't think I've ever written a low-doc deal because by the time that I hung up the biro as such, but it was always full-doc, and I'm sure your father spoke to the ratios and all that sort of stuff, and we can talk about that later if you want. Um, but you might say to an accountant, can I have the financials? Yes, I'll send them to you. Now... I was always fortunate enough to have a team around me of, at my peak I had um, two sales support fellows and I had two wonderful ladies working with documentation and so on. Now, my job is to be in front of a client 
and very rarely they were coming to the office. Why notes? So why prioritisation? The answer to your question, Alex, is to allow me to do what I'm here to do, which is to be in front of a person that has the capacity to say yes to my product, to be out of the office. So if I leave a trail of destruction, number one, my staff will be disengaged. If they walk in, bloody Cadell, what am I meant to do with this? The client's on the phone, he wants to know this, and we can't get David, and who cares, I'll get another job. But if I write down, we're going to do this, this is going to come, blah, 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 then my staff could come in, pick up the file and know where it is. This is not a quick answer. Um, so getting back to the accountant and the financials, and they're coming from Perth, is it by Seamail, by the Wells Fargo stagecoats via Darwin and the watering hole on Broome, and three weeks later we get them, or is it going to be by Air Express? So every conversation's got a different outcome. So back at uh, David Jones Finance, which is a job that I got paid for many years ago, we talked to, we began in collections. And when are you going to pay and how are you going to pay and when are we going to get that money? So we needed to know when that money would come in. And then we need to know we've got to contact that client the day after if it's not there. So I simply took that speed code from David Jones Finance and applied the same philosophy of it's coming by Wells Fargo stagecoats, I'll have the financials in three weeks, I won't ring you until three and a half weeks' time. So I would come in every morning, have my coffee, my desk was empty. So my mental state is, what a great day, let's get into it. My telephone was waiting for a phone call and I clean it every day so it smelled good, so I felt good. And in this office, which you probably can't sit, there were big drawers. I would create an action date on every single file. And for the month of March, if it was April, May, June, July, it will be tucked away. And the top drawer was the next six months and the bottom drawer was the ensuing six months with notes. And the only thing on my desk were all the files that I had to action for that month. And when I walk in, and you get to know in the back of your head anyway, but I would keep you in order from uh, right to left of the due date. So today would be there and the next date and so on down the line. Um, and then I would get all the action dates. I had files that would be that deep. And I get everything due for today and it would be that deep. Now, that's what David Jones Finance did. We had that many files. You think, I've got to chase money for all of those. But when you went through and had the action dates, the hold dates, I'd had that much. What was my mental state like? That, not achievable, I'm going to do a lousy job. That, achievable, I'm going to have a good day and I'm going to get outcomes. When I sit down to make my very first phone call, I've got the client I want to focus on and do the very best that I can. I've got a space if somebody rings and interrupts. When I pick up that phone, I am there for them and not for this spaghetti chart. And then I can see what's in front of me and I can see the rest of the week. And then I used to have morning meetings with my staff as best I could because they were also out. 
But then I'd go through the action dates and I could sit down in five minutes, and I haven't got to the best bit yet, in five minutes I could say this, that and the other, you go here because I'm going to be there, we'll do the other. And this is a really important deal, the big kahuna, I'm shutting my door for the next two days. Here's the next two days' work. Now, the best bit about all of that, I had reasonable staff retention and people were promoted through. Nobody ever left me because it was a cluster. I don't think. But if I was out, my people that worked off me were able to come in and find a file with complete and up-to-date notes and say, David's not in, but we're waiting on this. And finally, um, from a litigation point of view, um, it does protect our company where you never told me this or I expected the other when there are notes to say the contrary with time frames on phone calls. Um, because things do go wrong. And I've had a couple of those where I had one, my very first excavator, the client, five years later after bankruptcy and being an alcoholic and a gambler, advised me that he was temporarily insane at the, sign of, uh, at the time of signing. And that went on for seven years. And it wasn't the case, but, you know, so it makes you gun-shy and careful. So everything's got a reason to it. So that's a rather long-winded explanation of the structure. It's what we're here for. This is what we want to find out about. Tell me about David Jones Finance. So people think about David Jones as a retail store in Australia. What's the what's David Jones Finance? You want it all? Well, I mean, your okay. your your bid in not not the corporate history, but your your role and your bid in it, and what you know, how how that came to be. Um, all right. Well, I've been working in England in a pub with long hair and blue suede shoes. And then I got a job in management for millets, selling jeans and so on. I was going to be a training manager, um, or so they thought. And I got a haircut for that. And uh, I came back home and um, didn't know what I wanted to do. I was away for two years because I bought a car tax-free and I kept it out of the country. 18 months and bought a Beamer and I, I, I paid no sales tax, hence a long journey in Europe. And I was with Sylvia, my now wife of 45 years, and we bummed around and got jobs where and when we needed the money, and uh, uh, those days are long gone. So I got back, and my mother said, David Jones are looking for somebody. I still remember banging the new, you, you ought to go and do that. And I still had my long hair, my blue suede shoes, and no suit. So I went in and applied for the job. And they wanted four people. And they said no. And I went home. And uh, sadly, my dog had just died. I was in a bad way. And I kicked the hell out of the... Uh, I remember, You remember things. It's association. And I kicked the hell out of her, um, her dog box. Because I was mad at the world. Mm -hmm. Then the phone rang. And it was Jeff Green. And he called everybody Ned. He said, Ned, we only want four, but you're going to make five. So I took the job and um, David Jones uh, Finance was an offshoot of obviously the store 
Um, Charles Lloyd-Jones was the, uh, the chairman at the time. And uh, they had washing machines and so on. And they used to sell that on HP within the store. And there's a company called Beneficial Finance Corporation back in the day. And there's BFC. There are two different companies. Um, and um, David Wilson was the CEO of BFC. That's right. And he, um, he started running the finance department for the in-store higher purchase arrangements on washing machines. And he thought, why don't we call this a finance company and take it outside? So they, they, they built a finance company for personal loans only and they left the store, HPs on the washing machines, in a different division. David Jones Finance didn't do that. It's purely HPs and personal loans, but for external motor vehicles, caravans, boats, that sort of thing. So whilst it was branded David Jones, it was actually a, a more traditional finance company? Totally. Yeah, right. It was all BFC. We used, we used um, all the BFC documentation, all of it. Um, all they did was change the name at the top. It was the entire process bastardised and put over to us. And um, my first job was collections and learning to use a whole day and learning to get outcomes and so on. And then, um, then they taught you how to lend credit. It was a different metrics and a different servicing agreement to what we have, very primitive. But there was individual note loans, married eyes, oh, all flooding back to me now. But there was different. There was a servicing arrangement for it, very archaic compared to anything that our young people would know about. So we did all of that, and they offered me uh, a branch eventually in um, Mackay, and I thought. That'd be good. I'll you, were, you were living in Sydney, so we didn't, we didn't cover this. You grew up in Sydney, so you were living in Sydney. I was Sydney born in Melbourne till I was seven. I lived there, and then my father was transferred to Sydney. And um, I've, I've lived in Sydney, and I love Sydney, and Sydney will always be home. But they offered me Mackay, and um, to the disdain of my father-in-law, because I was just married. Actually, I wasn't. I take that back. I was about to be married. And I accepted the role, and I was about two weeks off. And I remember the phone call, it was actually on the weekend, it was at night, and Jeff Green phoned me, he called me Ned. He said, Ned, how would you like to go to Melbourne? And I said, well, my father left Melbourne to get away from it. I was born in Melbourne, and I like Sydney, and Mackay sounds good, it's closer to the equator, what are you offering? And they had one branch down there, he said, Ned, it's a golden opportunity. There's no one down there, there's this, there's that. In the back of my mind, I thought, I'll do David Jones for about another five or ten years and I'd like a hardware store. I wanted a hardware. I thought that'd be good. Wear the black and red check flannel shirts, have a pickup truck. You know, I thought that could be pretty cool in the car, go fishing on the weekend. Had a lot of appeal. Melbourne, cold, don't get out of bed till it's zero, you know. Um... I have to say at some point I'm a very proud Collingwood supporter and the early appeal was to be able to go to Victoria Park and introduce my wife to the real game. But anyway, so he convinced me and I went and I opened the second office in Dandenong, 31B Langhorn Street, Dandenong, on the 
13th of March 1978. And it was just me and a lovely young lady called Leslie. And when I left, we had building competitions every month. We had delinquency competitions every month. And the balance of that gave you points. And eventually they did prizes every half year or quarter. And I, I built that quite quickly. And then they introduced mortgages. So we were doing personal loans mortgages. You talk about work. Only um, none of the offices in David Jones Finance opened on a Saturday. I did. It was against company policy. I did. And when I left, um, we won everything there was to win. Um, the major prize was the trip overseas. And um, I had built up strong relations of Saturdays because the problem was the money lenders license dictated that if we saw a client, they had to come to our office. As a finance broker, you can go, I, I wasn't, I was a loan officer. And you had to be in the money lender's office to take out a loan. So I would see clients on a Saturday and sometimes go pick them up from the particular dealership and bring them back and interview them in my office and write the loans in my office. And um, uh, yeah, it was number one, where there were 84 offices and I was the number one office for the last 12 months. And I won that trip overseas and before, and I also won the cash and other prizes, all of which I gave to my staff as we went along. And I resigned to come back to Sydney because I just missed family. I resigned to come back to Sydney before I took the trip to Fiji. And if it's one of those sort of interviews, um, they rang me up and said, would I come back? I actually asked for a posting back in Sydney. And they said no. And I said, well, we want to come home. Uh, I'll wait, but Ned, you're doing well. Let's, you know, we'll make you regional manager down. Well, you know, all of that. But you've got to wait. And I've been four years, four and a half years. And uh, I came up, I waited, I went into the head office and I resigned to David Wilson himself. And they accepted the resignation. And then a week later, I got a letter saying, I'm welcome anytime in my career back at David Jones Finance and please take the trip, you've earned it. Hmm. Which is really decent. I only mentioned that hmm. in that they really did the right thing. And Sylvia and I went to Treasure Island for two weeks and all of that sort of stuff. Oh. And I came back and I took a job at Centrelease. Life changes. I was with, uh, I came back home for a holiday and I was having a beer with my dad and a mate of his, Ian Powell, who was a director of Record and Coleman. And he had a mate who was a recruitment fellow who knew of a company called Centrelease and a guy called Mark Smith. And I went over there for six months and I hated it. It wasn't the culture that I liked felt comfortable in and they gave me a finance book to manage and I wasn't being a finance broker which was the idea of the job. So I left and I went over to a place called Associated something or other and uh, I started there and the rest is history. Dad said um, that he saw some things in you which I won't tell you about um, as the reason why 
he partnered with you? Because you, according to him, you didn't actually know each other for very long before you made the proposal um, to work together. We hadn't known each other for very long. Yeah. Okay, so... Um, I started at Associated on the second week of September 1980 and had no clients but Associated was well recommended with um, Bob Leonard, uh, Paul Hammond and uh, some Associate Director by the name of Terence with one R, James Moody. And uh, I felt pretty insecure because I was married. We bought a totally derelict terrace house off the original owner. It was built in... Um, 1883, when I ripped up the lino, uh, there was newspaper dated the 10th of September 1883 underneath, and I've still got the original survey. But it needed complete renovation. You couldn't live in it. So I had no money other than a mortgage on the house. I had no clients, and I'd never been a finance broker before, but I wanted to do it. I could have gone back to David Jones. The door was open. But I didn't want to do that. Um, so I started treading the pavements. Now, your, your question was, how did we come about? Well, how did you come about? And how, and, and how did you, like... Get going? Why, well, why did, you, why did you choose to partner with Terry? Like, what was it about him? Um, okay. As Monty Python would say, a fair question and one that deserves a fair answer. Um, so you need the context, which was, and I can still tell you my exact numbers for the first 12 months. And it was a double, it was so exciting. You know, it was nothing, it was 200 bucks, 400 bucks. It, 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 it was just a buzz to be out there doing it. And literally walking, absolute cold came. And I thank David Jones for that, because going to Melbourne, the people would think I was Mr. Jones. You know, they'd never heard of it. There was no David Jones store in Melbourne. Um, and it was just cold canvas. Which means knocking on a door. Knocking totally on a door. Cold, Here's walking. my card. Can I help you? Yeah. I mean, when I said David Jones Finance, I was selling insulation at night home insulation, because I knew someone... As a side hustle. That's what they call them these days. Yeah, absolutely. I go out at night, had a little suitcase, and I had... I won't go into it now, but I was selling home insulation. And when somebody would say no, I thought, oh, my God, the world will end. And, you know, Tom Hopkins would always say, thanks for the $10. You don't want that story here now. Do you? No? Okay. We'll skip that, but... Um, it taught me to be brave, to be bold, to knock on a door. And the worst thing that's going to happen to you is to say, no, I've got one. I have home insulation, you know. Um, so I started doing that and it went pretty well. And there's a lovely uh, lady uh, that worked at Centrelease 
who I asked to join me because the problem was, and you're going to hear this a bit, and you would have heard it from Terry, I'm sure, if you're out, you can't be in. If you're in, you can't be out. I had a manual car, no air conditioning, no power steering, no fax machine, no mobile phone, so on. So um, you had to be good at making your arrangements. You had to be careful in your time management of where you went so that um, you had everything sorted out before you went because you couldn't follow up on it and they had no support back at the office. Um, associated brokers provided um, telephones, office space, someone to do your typing, an internal courier, but I didn't have secretarial support to take deals and follow up people and so on. Um, so I employed a young lady to do that and she stayed with me for probably about six months. And I did that almost from the get-go. Um, and Terry had somebody working for him as well. And her name was Karen, I think. And she'd been with Terry for quite a while. And this is how it all happened. Uh, and then the lady that was working with me didn't like it. It was too stressful or I actually forget. We got along just fine. She was lovely. But didn't like the job. And the Associated Brokers offices were certainly not flash. You know, the kitchen was down the hallway and it was a bit rough and ready. And I, I get all of that. And then Terry's Karen left as well. And I got to know Terry. Uh, he was the same age as me, roughly. I'm a year older. Um, and he was a good guy. I don't believe we'd socialise, but he was an associate director of the firm. And um, I had faith in him. Um, and then when Karen left, he was going to employ someone. And I think it was your dad came to me and said, you've just lost, I don't remember her name sadly, and he just lost Karen. Why don't we share a person? Not a female, not a male. Why don't we share a support person? And I thought, good idea. And um, I had my little Beamer I brought back, and your father had a Honda Accord. It's very flash. It had a little aerial in the. Most impressed me. Probably I joined up with him because he had a walkie-talkie and I didn't. And um, uh, we, I remember clearly interviewing different people as a support person, and why the relevance of the cars crucial. And we eventually employed a girl, a lovely lady by the name of Carol, Carol Grant, I think her name was. We called her Mouse because she was about four foot nothing but charming. And then Terry had his business, I had mine. And it went well fairly quickly. Terry had been there a couple of years or more, I'm not quite sure. Um, but we're sort of as busy as each other. And Terry would say, I need Carol to go to here, there and everywhere else. And I'd get 5% of her one day. Not a problem. So she'd take Terry's car. And some days I'd have 30% of, of her and 
she'd take my car and do the rest of the day for Terry in my car. And then that would be reversed and inverted and, you know, whatever the need was. And we did that for a long time. Mm. So you're and, already building trust, you're already building a relationship. And we never had a problem. Mm. But David had to be at Cronulla and Terry had to be at Hornsby. Mm. And I remember this distinctly, absolutely clearly like it was yesterday, because not often I'm right, but on this occasion I was dead right. There was a Friday evening, must have been winter because it was dark, but we were at the office. And your dad was heading off to England with you for a family holiday. And I had nothing to do with the operation of your father's business. But we were writing equivalent numbers, I think. Actually, I know. And um, your dad came to me and said, I'm off to England. And he said, will you look after my business? And I said, no. But I'll take half. Didn't offer to buy it. He said, I'll take half. And he looked at me. And then I said, and I just remember this syllable for syllable. I said, think about it, Terry. If you're out, you can't be in. If you're in, you can't be out. The moment we get Carol and the prioritisation is of the greatest need. Imagine if we're combined. And if I'm out, and this is where it came from, my Collingwood jeans. In Australian rules football, you've got the Ruckman, the Rover, one up for the ball, one down for the ball, waiting to receive it. And I said to your dad, imagine I can be out and you can be in and vice versa. And on my down days, we can go out together and vice versa and we can tag team. But with Carol, we can say you've got to start at Wollongong, go out to Penrith, go to Hornsby and then up the Central Coast so we can coordinate the appointments in the day with one person. And combined, let's get her a car and da-da-da and we'll go from there. And Terry said, I'll let you know on Monday. And he came in, he didn't say anything, he just shook my hand. And that was it. And to this day, we've never had anything in writing other than the fact we're joint directors, shareholders of Medicavel, etc. But we've never had anything um, even down to a buy-sell agreement. Years ago we had an insurance in place over death and so on, but that's gone now. Um, but that's, that's how it came about. So you started the business, you went through a rough patch in the late 80s, early 90s with the recession. What are the what are the big moments, if you think about the business now and really think about Moody Cadell, what are the, what, what are the, sort, of the, the, the sort of flashback moments for you as the, as the major? Are they the down points, the up points? Are they the GFCs? Are they the, the big wins? Okay. Um, first of all, now is an appropriate time to say that your father's an amazing fellow. Um, I tr I've, I've got good friends, but I trust my life with your father. Full stop. Not much more to say after that, but if we're to 
drill down to the mind. It's wonderful to have that where, no matter the set, I've had some rough moments. Um, your father's got a one. He's got a couple of wonderful qualities. No tests in his football teams. <laughs> he picks the Waratahs. He's got no hope. But number one, I've never been with anybody that can walk into a conference, we've been to many together, and you'll pick up the marrow in the bone and come back with the kernel of the corn and say, that was amazing. I said, what was that? I missed it. And then we drilled down on that together. And he was always very good at that. Um, he's the most moral person I've ever met in my life. Full stop. Not a bad starting point. As a highlight, I would begin with that. And without that, it wouldn't be here. I'd like to think, well, I know there's the mutual trust. Um, but that's been a wonderful journey. And now they're old and wrinkly. People say, you guys are still together, you know. And it's a nice thing. And then to watch the succession, uh, well, I hope we'll speak about that in a moment, but it's the ultimate joy. Well, I mean... But is, you know, these are the, the you know, the, that's the question. These are the, okay, these are the bits, well, um, I will come to that. That's the uh, jewel in the crown. Um, the nitty bitties, um, you know, yeah, we had um, 82 were tough times, recession wise. 84 where that was pretty tough. We were talking about mental health before this interview. And it's tough when there's no business out there. There's a rep, Rick Crystal. Uh, he's dead now. Good man. Worked for Case for 30 years and Cabalco for a long time. And I remember in the, in the good times, I'd say to Vic, how you doing, Vic? And he'd say, oh, no good. I said, how come, mate? And say, oh, there's so much business out there. It's so competitive. Oh, it's no good. And then in the bad times, how are you doing, Oh, no good, mate. How come? Conversely, oh, it's no business out there. So you've just got to make the most of the day. That's why the empty desk and this is going to be the greatest day of my life, another Tom Hopkins thing. Um... The crucial points, obviously, when we got together and we had that trust before we began, point number one. The turning point for the company, um, I have a friend, an accountant, Neil MacDonald, uh, and uh, he referred me a transaction that the dealership, Domino Industries, who sold, amongst other things, Hitachi excavators, and... Um, they referred me a transaction for Dennis S. Collins at Musselbrook, who is still alive, I'm happy to say, to this day. And he bought a handmade track excavator, which was the machine of choice before the backhoe that we know it today. Tractor loader backhoe is officially what it's called, but we all call it a backhoe. And before the excavator, this was like a big bulldozer, but it had options over a bulldozer. Couldn't be placed. So I brought it back, and we sat down. It was your father that worked it through with uh, Tony Roberts at PFC. We got the deal placed. An AGC 
couldn't do the deal. AGC, Australian Guarantee, formerly owned by Westpac, later sold to GE Corporation. But call it Westpac today. And Gordon Phillips, who was the sales manager of Domino, said, you guys are fantastic. Come and meet the team. We want to deal with you. I said, at the exclusion of AGC? He said, yes. There are conditions. You can't work for anybody else. This was a huge, huge, huge change, changing point for this company, or for Moody Cannell. I hasten to add, at that time, it was associated brokers, but our shareholding was through... Um, Moody Cadell got incorporated in 81, I think. So, there you are. And I went out and we did uh, a talk. All the sales reps were there, there were about eight sales reps. And we did why they should deal with David and Terry. We'll get the job done and we'll call you back. And it worked and they gave us a truckload of business. I had no idea what a four in one bucket was, what a quick hitch was, what a Rob's canopy, but you learn. And we went to the shows and we dug holes with the machines, we got our fingernails dirty and we loved it. We played with big Tonka toys and somebody else paid for the petrol. It was a lot of fun. But then, within a year, all those reps around the table, they all left, but they didn't go and sell Singer sewing machines or Lear Jets. They all went to John Deere, Komatsu, all the other people that Caterpillar, they all stayed within the earth moving industry. And then they rang up and said, can you come over here? We said, no, we can't because Gordon Phillips said, you can't deal with anybody else. Well, they'd all left. They were all new people. And uh, Gordon Phillips said, they're all gone. So we suddenly were working for John Deere and Cabalco and Cato and all of these people. And we got to know the other products and the other people and the insurers in the industry and the people that saw the accessories of the ROPS canopies and the buckets and so on. We went to all of the shows and before you knew it, we were the acknowledged experts. And we were. I've driven everything from, a, you know, up to... Uh, I've driven a Cat 10 with tines on it. So... You know, and, and your dad's done exactly the same thing. That would be the biggest change. And then from there, we did a couple of things that might be different for the industry. We were confidential. So if we were doing a deal for, we'll call it Cato, which is a brand of excavator you will not see, but it's held by uh, Banbury Engineering. Um, and they were looking at a Cabalco, which was sold by Blackwood Hodge back in the day. And all the reps knew each other, and they knew that we were on the deal for Cato. And they would ring us up and say, what's the price of? We would never divulge any information other than to say, yeah, we're working on it. They're good people. And we earned the respect. And this is the second big thing, probably the biggest thing. This is the biggest thing. We established our integrity, bar none, with this, within this industry by one, having complete and utter supreme integrity of that transaction remain with Moody Cadell, the client, and what is required, 
to the dealership, not the specific net worth, fundamentals of his balance sheet, anything like that, but we're working on it, we'll get it done, we're working on it, it's never going to happen. But the integrity of that transaction remained within these four walls. And that became respected. And we didn't pay commission to sales reps. Whereas at that time, you know, other financial institutions were offering, you know, a block of flats and Tasmania if they could have that deal. We never, ever, ever did that. And that's remained to this day. Um, and that's established us as being the experts within the industry. Now, over time, many of the manufacturers have now created their own in-house finance companies, and that's just a change. Um, but our database uh, is heavily weighted towards the earth-moving industry, and we're still held to this day in good stead. So that would be the most significant change as to the fundamental operation of this company. Great call. Now, the second thing that's made us, everything's the first thing. I mean, there's so many little things. But to my knowledge, every single broking house in this country bar, I can only think of one and you know better than I, but every single broking house is commission only. In fact, it associated brokers of as a commission split. But Terry and I started to employ broking staff and over time, on the 1st of July 1990, we sold our shareholding back to Associated Brokers and left our other two business partners, because at that time I was then a 25% holder of Associated as well with Terry. And we went out to dinner with Paul Hammond and Bob Leonard and we wound up, we left as very good friends and we sold our equity back and we, and we started trading Moody Canelo and Partners um, in the basement of my home for a number of years because the recession, you asked me about that, the Paul Keating recession, the recession we had to have in mm -hmm. the Banana Republic, hit in 1989, ended in 94 when that funny little man stood up and said, and the winner is Sydney, and we won the Olympics, and the whole world changed. Um, but as we employed staff, we began as, and we, we remain today as, uh, a salaried company. All of our staff are on a salary. Why? So that we can have a corporate culture, we can have a corporate ethic, so that we can have a corporate set of values. When I say corporate, I should say collegiate. And your father, years ago, you know, We've got so many different jobs. Your father summed it up by saying there are finders, minders, binders and grinders. And we've all got different outcomes we want from our career. We've all got different egos. We've all got different personalities. And it's very hard when you've got... That can be conflicting. And Terry, Terry said that he'd like everyone to arrive with a clean car, shiny shoes and get out of the lift and be all that they can be for that day, which is sort of what I've been talking about anyway. And by having everybody on a salary, several things happen. One, we've got a consistent set of values that 
a financier can relate to because they know that when they deal with the Moody Cadell submission, we won an award that I accepted in Brisbane too long ago to remember, but for the integrity of our submissions, and that was um, Suncorp, and it'll be out there amongst all the glassware somewhere. But it's the nicest one we've ever had. We're getting for volume and this and that and the other. But this one said, and I was told that in front of a bunch of people, a room full of people, as I accepted the award for the company. And it said, he said, this is for the integrity of the firm. But I want you to know, David, and this was the CEO of the joint, of, of um, Suncorp. He said, if there's a stack of submissions to come out of the tray, and this is the day before, long before the way we do it today, they're actually paid for and faxed up. If there's a Moody Cadell submission anywhere in the pile, our people seek it out, because all the information is there. And the integrity comes with that, and we trust what's in the submission. Hmm. And that all comes to the fact that we have good pro... And you've enhanced that so much. You've taken it to a whole new level. But through our earlier days of junior broker, broker, senior broker, training and so on, and through the values that Terry's built through CAFPA, and we haven't even spoken about that, which are crucial. We've been able to have a uniform platinum standard of our submissions and the way we conduct ourselves, the way we dress. You know, certainly in my day, it was the business suit and you you dress up, dress down. The most important thing is the customer is comfortable with the way that you're attired because many earth-moving people don't like somebody in a suit because they see it as a bank and being overcharged and so on. That might <laughs> be appropriate to say, but um, people want to feel comfortable in who they're dealing with and by having a core set of values, a core ethic, a core way we dress, a core way we always call people back, um, is a game changer for this business by comparison to any other company conducting finance broking, I believe, in this country. Um, so we're, we're coming towards the end of the interview. Oh, okay. Tell us about, um, you mentioned succession was important for you. I know family's very important to you. Um, legacy, tell us about what that means. I can keep it brief. Absolutely everything. So, you hatch a beautiful baby and all you want to do is care for it. Lady Cadell. Body and soul has gone into the establishment of this through not just Terry and I, but a lot of people. And over time, Terry and I have got old. And it's fair enough for young people to think, because as you know, we recruit a lot of people, fresh out of university, finance sounds sexy, I want to I get into that. Not knowing really much about it. And then they get here and it's a buzz. And pre-COVID, when there were 40-odd people on the floor here, it was just like... It was just electric. 
and they look around and they see the progression through the business and one of the great things about being salaried is we can say we can offer you a career path from junior to senior broker to and then one day an employment share scheme and we've done that but the question has to be where will I be in five years, I'll be a junior broker, a senior broker, or a what broker. I'll be an analyst, I'll be this, I'll be that. But where will I be? Well, I want to marry that girl. And I want to buy a house. And I can't afford a ring. So I'm going to save up. And whilst I love the job, is this the best place? And I'm proud to say that I think uh, our remunerations have always matched and bettered what is available for a comparable job in the marketplace. But they look at their future, and as Terry and I get a little bit older, I'd like to say a little bit wiser, but certainly a little bit older, they might think, well, they're not going to be here forever. What's next? And an employment share scheme provides and offers part of the solution. But at the end of the day, this is a family business. So you've got to have a blend of offering equity to those that want to invest their time and their capital into the business over years to come. But also you want to retain the family content because it's wholesome, because it's the DNA of the people that built the company in the first place, and because you would like to see your sons succeed. Um, I know how proud your father is of you and I'm just going to say it, but you know, your old man and I were pretty tired when you took over the reins of this business and you have done a remarkable, a remarkable job and you've taken the values and you've just injected them with energy, pride and foresight and I enjoy hearing about it every day as I'm on the golf course. You've enabled Terry and I to think about retirement and enjoy our retirement knowing that this business could not be in better hands and the compliments come to me all the time about you sir. I have a son and Jack's 33, he's done two degrees now. Um, and you, you get a bit concerned about nepotism and so on, but Jack's started in the broom closet straight after doing a business degree and he's done every single job in this place and has built the Salesforce network that we have today and amongst other things and turning the insurance business substantially around that it's a place that people want to be at and it's something for the future that will be enormous. So yes, I'm a very proud father. I was, I, I'll jump in there. I think, um, because obviously, just like David, uh, you know, Terry was your business partner, still is your business partner. Jack is mine. And I was really interested in the question as to why and how you guys, you know, sort of came to be partners because that was voluntary. It was a choice, whereas with Jack and I, um, for better or for worse, it's an arranged marriage. I love that saying. And, and that could have gone really, I mean, any relationship can go pear-shaped, 
but that could have really gone pear-shaped and it is absolutely not. It's absolutely opposite and I think if you look at Jack and me, we're very much, very much yin and yang and it's super, super complementary and, you know, where I'm not strong, he's super strong and where he might have maybe a blind spot that's where I'm strong and it just sits really really nicely so and that was that's just freaky that that actually happened um, but anyway yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thoroughly thoroughly enjoying um, running the business with him as a peer well it's the icing on the cake I'm sure for your father your dad and I have often been called the odd couple yeah. for the very same things that you've just said 100%. Um, and that's fine um, but, you know, 42 years on, well, here we are. And uh, he just looked in through the window there to see because we're going to have lunch together. What a joy for me to grab your old man. We'll go out and talk about this interview now and we'll talk about different things. And, um, you know, it's just been a dream, a dream run. So what does succession mean? Absolutely everything. But I didn't come to my to my point that is really, really important, which is people want to know they've got not a job, I'd like to think. People want to know they've got a career, that they mean something to the environment, to the people, to the business, to the customs, to the process, to the wins and the losses. And we've got those people here. And by having people such as Jack and Alex, now running the business, making, the making all the decisions with wonderful people to advise and consult with along the journey. It ticks all the boxes for young people to say, I can go out and buy an engagement ring. I will be able to afford a private school for my children. I will be okay in retirement. I read in my desk calendar, um, about 1981 it said success is a journey not a destination 